0: All right, church, We'll hope you enjoy that time of worship together. Now let's worship through the Word. If you would take your Bibles, go with me to Matthew chapter 8. Matthew chapter 8, I want to say thank you to the uh, praise team and all that they're doing and coming here, all the extra hours that they put in during the week and uh, the wonderful music that they produce and uh, everybody involved with that do a marvelous job. But I want to say thank you to them. Matthew chapter 8, you know, there's a story of a great uh, trapeze artist his name was Blondin. And Blondin, at one point, stretched a uh, long steel cable across the Niagara Falls. And uh, people noticed he was doing it, so obviously the, the, the he's gaining a crowd, you know. And and uh, once that thing was in place, he had finally worded, gotten out, and a big crowd had came to watch him. And he walked across that thing, and then walked back to the other side. The people were just applauding, and Whoo! You know, they were that is something, you know, that's incredible. They were amazed by that. Then uh, he made another uh, uh, trip across that, that steel cable, went all the way across it. This time he kind of ran a little bit and even stopped and did a little dance, you know, in the middle of it. And then he came back and did the same thing on the way back. And the people were just in awe of what he was doing. And they were applauding and raising their hands. They were just, once again, they were just amazed at what was taking place. Then he got a wheelbarrow full of bricks and he pushed it all the way across the falls and then turned around and came right back once again the people were just amazed at what he was doing and that he was able to do that and then he called out to the crowd and he said how many of you think I could push a full grown man across the falls in this wheelbarrow on that steel cable and everybody was like yeah they raised their hands yeah you can do it we think you can do it and then he said this all right Who would like to volunteer? All those hands that were raised, (sighs) they went straight down. Nobody wanted to take that chance. You know, that is a lot like how people look at and treat salvation. Salvation, somebody knowing Christ as their savior, someone being a Christian. They think or they believe that what is before them has taken place But when it comes to actually getting into the wheelbarrow of God's salvation and committing their life to the Lord, they don't want to do that. They would rather hold on to whatever they have in their own lives. And, you know, many Christians today, if you ask them, when I say Christians, I put that in quotes because a lot of people have a lot of different definitions about what a Christian is. But if you ask them today uh, how they know that they're going to heaven, you'll get all kinds of answers. The most common one I experience is they'll say, well, I believe in God. Okay, what, what does that mean? Or they'll say, well, I have faith. you know. Okay, thank you, George Michael from the 80s, because you just got to have faith, right? That was his song, right? And, and they, that just got the word faith out there. Well, you just got to have faith. Or will I trust God? Well, what does that mean? Explain what that involves. You know, uh, Some people will say, well, you know what? I prayed a prayer. Or maybe I walked an aisle. Or maybe I had an emotional mountaintop experience. You know, I got chills up and down in my arms and the hairs of my arms stood up and, and, and those, there's nothing wrong with those things. But what do they mean? What do they entail? I met a guy not too long ago. He came here to the church and uh, his name was Donald. Donald was homeless. He had a, his van out here and he asked, you know, Hey, uh, pastor, could you, could you give me some fuel and, and some groceries? I'm headed back to Virginia. I said, sure, no problem. So we took Donald up here to the, local, circle K and, and, uh, filling up his, his van and, and, uh, it took a while and, and the van was pretty much just about on empty, really. And of course, while you sat there pumping that gas, you got plenty of time to talk. And, uh, in doing so, I asked him about his relationship with God. I asked him about his salvation. I asked him what he thought it took to, uh, go to heaven. And he says, well, I got saved at age 19. Okay. And I got to be honest with you. Donald looked rough. I don't smell rough. It like life had not been too kind to him. He had had a rough, rough life. But I just took it. You know, he just explained to me what he thought, you know, and I just kind of stood not in agreement. Eventually, uh, we stopped pumping the gas and went inside the store and got some groceries for him and brought it back out and about to send him on his way. So I probed again. You know, and I said, you know, Don, it's important that you know Christ as your Savior. It's important that you've given your life over to the Lord. And then he made this statement. Oh, pastor, I got saved when I was 14. And I went, wait a minute. I thought you said, I didn't say this out loud, but I thought to myself, I thought earlier you said you got saved at 19. Now you're telling me you got saved at 14. Okay. And I came to this realization after I, I uh sent him on his way. I came to this realization. Donald knew all the right answers. He had it up here. He knew what salvation meant. He knew what it meant to be born again. He knew what it meant to to go to heaven. He knew who Jesus was, what Jesus did. He knew all the answers, but I got to be honest with you. I don't think Donald's saved. I could be wrong. God knows the heart, but I really do not think that Donald is saved. He said initially, well, I believe in God. Well, we all know the verse, James chapter two, verse nine. You believe that there is one God, you do well, James says, the demons believe and tremble. You see, it's not just about believing in God. What does it mean to have true saving faith? When you say, I believe in God, when you, when you make that statement, I mean, James, when James chapter two, verse nine, when I just quoted that, he said the demons believe. Well, congratulations. If you say you believe in God, then you have a faith of, of a demon because the demons believe. But in Matthew chapter 8, we're going to look at something that kind of clarifies what it means to be saved, what it means to be born again, what it means to have great faith. And that's the title of our message today, great faith. What does it mean to have true saving faith, believing faith, born again faith? Matthew chapter 8, beginning of verse number 5. It says, now when Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him, pleading with him, saying, Lord, My servant is lying at home paralyzed, dreadfully tormented. And Jesus said to him, I will come and heal him. The centurion answered and said, Lord, I am not worthy that you should come under my roof, but only speak a word and my servant will be healed. For I am a man under authority and I have soldiers under me. And I say to this one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard it, he marveled. And said to those who followed him, Assuredly, I say to you, I have not found such great faith, not even in Israel. Drop down to verse number 13. Then Jesus said to the centurion, Go your way, and as you have believed, so let it be done for you. And his servant was healed that same hour. Let's pray. Father, bless this reading of your word. Bless your word as it's taught, as it's preached. Lord, may it penetrate our hearts. Holy Spirit, speak to us. May we be different because of this. Lord, if there's someone who's listening today who does not know you as their Savior, Lord, they, they believe in God, but they truly have put their faith and trust in you. I pray that today that will take place. Bless this time in your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. You look at the context here. This is right after the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. That's the Sermon on the Mount. And then beginning of chapter 8, verse number 1, you find that Jesus encounters a leper. And the leper wants to be cleansed, and Jesus cleanses him. And then he goes right into this as he's going into Capernaum. Now, Capernaum, this was a city near the Sea of Galilee. This was kind of like the home base for the disciples of Jesus, all right? It was from there that they would go out to the various villages and cities and towns uh, and, and preach and teach. But just uh, he had just finished the Sermon on the Mount, and he meets up with this centurion, commander of a 100 soldiers in the Roman army. And the centurion comes to him and says, you know what, uh, Lord, my servant is sick. It's bad. It's not good at all. He's in terrible agony. He's paralyzed. In fact, in the, the story in Luke chapter 7 says that he was near death, which we know that paralysis can ultimately lead to death. So it was a pretty desperate situation. And he he just basically told Jesus, Jesus, my servant is sick, ready to die. Please, please come and heal him. Now, there are a few differences between the passage here in Matthew and the passage in Luke. For instance, uh, and let me just explain it this way. Luke is a lot more detail oriented. Luke's a lot wordier, if you will, when it comes to uh, explaining events. And for instance, Luke includes that this uh, centurion was loved by the Jews and he loved the Jewish people. Matthew doesn't necessarily say that. In fact, Luke tells us that this centurion built a place of worship for the Jews. He built a synagogue. So obviously that kind of tells you uh, his relationship there. Also, in Luke it says, here in Matthew it says that um, the centurion came and spoke. But in Luke it says that the elders of the Jews came and spoke. And the friends of the centurion came and spoke. Which one's right, Pastor? Yes, both. They're both right. I believe that, yes, the centurion sent the elders of the Jews to speak to Jesus. And whenever you would go to someone and speak on behalf of someone else, you would take their word. And these elders of the Jews in Luke chapter 7, when they came to Jesus, they were telling Jesus exactly what the centurion said. The centurion had a lot of authority. He had a lot of power when people... Uh, when he spoke to people, he spoke with great authority. So whenever they delivered the message to Jesus, it was as if the centurion was right there giving the message to Jesus. It was just that the elders of the Jews were saying it. And then it says right after that, that the uh, friends of the centurion came. In fact, I'll tell you what, turn with me, go to Luke chapter 7. I want you to see this, Luke chapter 7. This same story in Luke chapter 7, beginning of verse number 6. It says, then Jesus went with them, and when he was already not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, as I said earlier, uh, to him, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy that you should enter under my roof. Now, did you hear that? Did you catch that? The friends were to give Jesus a message, and the message was, I, the centurion, I am not worthy that you should come under my roof. In other words, they were specifically representing him. In fact, I believe the centurion may have been following behind them or traveling with them because look, look further. Verse seven. Therefore, I did not even think myself worthy to come to you. It's as if the centurion himself is speaking, but say the word and my servant will be healed. For I am a man placed under authority, having soldiers. Under me, and I say to the one, go, and he goes, and to another, he comes, and he comes, and to the, my servant, do this, and he does it. No, look at this. Look at verse nine. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. In other words, I believe very, uh, uh, possibly that the centurion, not only did the elders of the Jews and the friends of the centurion come and give the message, I believe it is a strong possibility that the centurion was right there in the midst of them. Delivering the message. Because Jesus said he's, that he marveled at him. All right? But nonetheless, this has taken place. It's, it's a little bit different, but Luke just adds some details here. Back to uh, Matthew chapter 8. The key verse here is verse number 10. Verse number 10 of Matthew 8 says, Assuredly I say to you, I have not found such great faith, not even in Israel. Now what is great faith? That's the title of our message. What is great faith? I want to share with you today four evidences of great faith that I see in here. Four evidences of great faith. Saving faith. Believing faith. Born again faith. What caused the centurion to be saved? I believe that one day when we get to heaven, we'll see the centurion in heaven. I really do. Number one evidence. Number one. The affirmation of the position of Christ. The affirmation of the position of Christ. If you look at verses six and eight you'll find a single word in there that really tells us a lot about this centurion and how he thought of Jesus. He uses the word Lord. Matthew chapter 8, verse number 6. The centurion came saying, Lord. Verse number 8, the centurion answered and said, Lord. The word Lord there, the Greek word is curiosity. It means master. The one that I bow to, the one that, I, that is over me, that, that is the master of me. I am that person's slave. I am that person's servant, Lord. What was he saying here? The centurion was saying, this is God. This is deity. This is the Lord. He has great power to do great things, like heal my serpent. He can heal in front of an audience. He can heal all by himself. He can heal by saying a word. He can heal by not saying a word. He can heal by touch, or he can heal by thought. He can heal far away, or he can heal close by. Either way, he can do all those things. Why? Because he's God, that's what he's acknowledging here. He's affirming that Jesus is the Lord. He is God. Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse number five, we preach Christ Jesus as Lord. When Thomas was in the upper room with the disciples, remember, this was eight days after the disciples said that they saw Jesus, and they told Thomas, and Thomas was like, no way, you didn't see Jesus. I will not believe you guys are crazy. I'm not going to believe unless I can put my fingers in the nail prints in his hands. and I can put my hand in the, the spears uh, uh, in his side, that hole in his side. I'm not going to believe. And then Jesus shows up, right? And what was Thomas's response? My Lord and my God. First Corinthians chapter eight, verse number six, Paul says, There is one God, the Father, of whom are all things, and one Lord Jesus Christ. Turn with me if you would in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. The centurion understood his position. He affirmed his position of Christ, as Christ, as God. Philippians chapter 2, verse number 9. Philippians 2, 9. Now I want you to watch this carefully. Look at these verses, because you'll miss it if you don't, if you don't t- pay careful attention. Verse number nine, Philippians two nine, therefore God has highly exalted him. Who's him? Jesus and given him, Jesus, the name which is above every name. All right. You catch that? God has given him the name. Well, what name? Let's keep reading that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those in heaven of the and those on the earth and those under the earth and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is what? Lord. There's the name. There's the name. He's acknowledging his name here. Paul is saying this, Jesus, this Christ, this Messiah, this Savior is God. He is Lord. And that's what the centurion did. He affirmed the position of Christ. God has highly exalted him and give him a name that's above every name. What name? Lord Jesus Christ Christ is Lord. And you know, that's part of salvation. Understanding who Jesus is. He is God incarnate. He is Lord. He is master. He is creator. He is deity. And understand that Jesus is God. He's not just another man. He's God in the flesh. The centurion, part of His salvation experience was he affirmed the position of Christ. Secondly, he submitted to the authority of Christ, submission to the authority of Christ. Back in Matthew, chapter number eight, verses eight, and nine, he says, Lord, I am not worthy that you should come under my roof. I'm not worthy. In other words, Lord, don't go through the trouble. Don't don't come to my house. You do not need to do that. I know who you are. And I'm submitting to your authority. I'm submitting to whatever you want. I'm submitting to whatever you say. You don't have to come. I'm not worthy for you to come. He had the mindset of John the Baptist. Remember what John the Baptist said about Jesus? I'm not even worthy to unlatch his sandals. I'm not worthy to untie or tie his shoes. He is is God and he submits to him in that way. Now the centurion here, he understood two things. Number one, he understood how to submit. He understood submission. Because he dealt with it every day with his own hundred men that he had. All right, do this, they do it. I say to them, go there, they go there. I say to my servant, do this, he does it. He understood what it meant to submit. But he also says here that I have people in authority over me. So he knew what it meant to submit to the authorities that were over him. And he was submitting to the Lord Jesus Christ here. So he understood submission, but he also understood his own sinfulness. He understood his own sinfulness. He knew, Lord, do not come to my house. I am a Gentile. I am a Roman. I'm what you Jews would call a Gentile dog. But I love you all anyway. I am not worthy that you should come into my house. In fact, you coming up into my house and coming under my roof. I believe that the Gentile centurion here probably realized that that would contaminate and make Jesus ceremonially unclean if he actually did that. So he's saying, don't don't do that. I'm a sinful man. You don't need to come and contaminate yourself in my sin. He understood he needed to submit to the authority of God. He needed to merge with God, not the other way around. You know, a lot of people have that kind of mindset. Well, I'll just accept Jesus and I'll just... No, you don't understand. Accepting Jesus and believing on Jesus is not just saying, I believe that Jesus is God and doing whatever you want to do for the rest of your life. No, no, no. There's an element of submission That's there. All of us at one time or another have had to merge onto a highway, right? We go down the service road, and then we get to the on-ramp. Now, when you get to the on-ramp, the main highway is is, uh, to your left or wherever it is, and you have to merge into traffic. Now, the traffic doesn't have to merge into you. You have to merge into the traffic. They should not have to necessarily adjust, unless it's absolutely necessary. They should not have to adjust what they're doing. You have to adjust What to what they are doing and how fast the traffic flow is and where people are. You're looking in your mirrors, you're looking behind you and you're just looking all around because you want to merge into the traffic there. And when you merge onto that highway, you want to do that because you know that once you get on that highway, it is going to be the most direct route to get you to where you want to go. Well, to get to heaven, the most direct route, in fact, the only route to get to heaven Is through Jesus Christ. There is no other way. So you must merge, i.e. submit to his authority, to his position, to who he is. That he is God and you are not. That he is sinless and, and we are sinful. That he is the savior and we need a savior. That we are lost and we need to be saved. Instead, so many people just, well, I believe in Jesus, but they continue on their sin. That's not it. That is not salvation. Salvation is understanding how sinful we are. And that God is our only hope. Found in the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, part of the submission, he said, only speak. Lord, all you have to do is speak and my servant will be healed. He's saying I'm submission submitting myself to your will. I'm submitting myself to your words. I'm submitting myself to your voice. I'm submitting myself to your wisdom. I'm submitting myself to your authority. I'm submitting myself to your power. You have the power over sickness, disease, paralysis, leprosy, blindness, people who are lame, mute, death, even death itself. You have all authority over that and I submit to that authority. Listen. To We are not worthy to go to heaven. We're not. We are not worthy to have a relationship with God. We are not worthy to be forgiven. We are not worthy to receive his love, his mercy, his grace. And because of that, we need to have the attitude of the apostle Peter when they didn't catch any fish all night long, And Jesus told them to throw out the nets one more time, and they caught so many fish that the nets began to break. And Jesus fell at Jesus' feet. Peter fell at Jesus' feet, and he said, This, depart from me, for I am a sinful man. We need to have the attitude of the tax collector who was at the temple beating his chest and would not even look up to heaven, had his eyes down, beating his chest, and saying, Oh God, be merciful to me, a sinner. We must experience The submission to God's authority in our lives. That's part of salvation. Submission to the Lord. Thirdly, there's the reception of the power of Christ. There's the affirmation of the position of Christ. Submission to the authority of Christ. And thirdly, the reception of the power of Christ. In verse number seven, he says, Jesus says, I will come and heal him. The latter part of verse number eight, the centurion says, my servant will be healed. What's he saying? He's saying, I'm receiving Jesus' power. I'm receiving his healing power. I know that this that my servant will be healed. And I am receiving that. And in verse number 13, it says that his servant was healed that same hour. He has the power to do that. The question is, are we willing to receive that transforming power? That saving power? Listen, God has the power to change the water. Jesus has the power to walk on water Jesus has the power to calm the storm or to bring the storm he has the power to walk in the midst of the storm he has the power to feed thousands with just a few loaves and a few fishes he has the power to heal the lame the mute the leper the deaf the dumb he has the power to get rid of the demons in fact when Jesus showed up and there were demons in the area they right away spoke out and said Who, what have we to do with you thou Jesus the son of God are you here to, to torment us before the time they knew Why? Because Jesus is powerful. And the centurion understood that. He has the power to create. He has the power to tell fish get into the net. He has power to tell a fish swallow this coin so my disciples later on can go fishing and get the taxes that they need out of that fish's mouth. He has the power to defeat Satan. Face-to-face confrontation with Satan in the wilderness. And Jesus has the power to defeat him. Jesus has the power to escape harm. Whenever people surrounded him, even those who wanted to kill him on the spot, but yet Jesus was able to maneuver himself out of it. They weren't going to touch him until he got to the cross. He had the power to allow these these Gentile dogs, these Roman soldiers, to come and arrest him. He allowed it to happen. And that took great power for them to allow it to happen. He had the power to stand before the religious leaders in a a trial that was a total sham. He had the power to stand before Pilate and hundreds, possibly thousands of people that screamed crucifying him. He had the power to hold his hands out so that men could put nails in his hands and his feet and raise him up on an old running cross and to stay there without calling 10,000 angels to come and just obliterate everything and everybody. He had the power to do that. He had the power to raise himself from the dead on the third day. Then he had the power to ascend into heaven and one day he will come in great glory and strength and power. This centurion understand, understood that Jesus had the power to do something and he accepted. He received that power. Hebrews 7.25. Write that verse down. Hebrews 7.25. Therefore, he is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him. Saved. He's able to save you. He's able to save me from the wages of your sin. He saved me from the wages of my sin. What were, what were those wages? Death. Death. Separation from God. Experiencing the judgment and wrath of God. He saved me from that. He saved me from the powers of, uh, of the chains of sin. He saved us from the power of sin itself. And It doesn't matter what you've done. This guy was a centurion. This guy was a Gentile. Gentiles were despised by the Jews. But yet he came to Jesus. Listen, it doesn't matter what you've done. Jesus transformed the lives of so many people. He changed them and and he saved them. People caught in adultery. People that were demon-possessed. Mary Magdalene. Deniers like, like the Apostle Peter. He saved people that were Christian killers. Terrorists of those days. The Apostle Paul. Zacchaeus, a crook, a thief, a liar, and he received the power, the transformed power of the gospel of Christ. Roman soldiers, the one Roman soldier that stood at the cross and said, surely this is the son of God. Pharisees and religious leaders like Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, who were believers, quiet believers, but nonetheless they were believers in Christ and changed their lives. Jesus has saved murderers and thieves and liars and adulterers and tax cheats and conspirators, rapists, blasphemers, terrorists, and he can save you. If you'll recognize that he is God and submit to his authority, believe in his name, and receive his power of forgiveness for your salvation, he's ready to save you. Will you affirm in your heart that he's God? Will you submit to his authority and bow before him and his understanding of your own and my own sinfulness? I did long ago. Will you recognize his power to save you? Will you receive him? Let's get down to the final evidence. There's the affirmation of the position that's Jesus' Lord. There's submission to his authority because we're hopeless and we're lost, We're, we're sinful people. And then there's the reception of his ability to save, receiving his power. And fourthly and lastly, there's transformation into the image of Christ. Go back to Luke chapter 7 with me again. Luke chapter 7. This is where we'll end up today. Luke chapter 7. Same story. Again, a few more details than normal, than what Matthew listed. But nonetheless, you'll see here that his life is transformed by Christ. It is obvious that this centurion was a believer in Yahweh and a believer in Jesus. He understood what that was. He may not have understood it fully, but he was a firm believer in the Lord God and that Jesus was that Lord God. But I want you to look at chapter 7, verse 2. It says, And a certain centurion's servant who was dear to him, catch that, was sick and ready to die. So when he heard about Jesus, he sent elders of the Jews uh, pleading with him to come and heal his servant, verse four. And when they came to Jesus, they begged him earnestly, saying that the one for whom he should do this was deserving. The guy, the centurion is deserving is what the Jews are saying here. For he loves our nation and has built for us a synagogue, verse number six. Then Jesus went with them, and when he was already not far from the house, the centurion said, Friends I'm saying, Lord, do not trouble yourself. For I am not worthy that you should uh, enter under my roof. Therefore, I did not even think myself worthy to come to you. But say the word and my servant will be healed. I think it's interesting. The word servant here is the same word that we use for son. Child. In other words, this servant, this slave, was near and dear to the centurion. You see, what I, I believe that the power of God had already been received by the centurion, and he was already a believer in Jesus. He knew who Jesus was. He loved the Jewish people. That was uncommon. That, that did not happen among Gentiles. But he loved the Jewish people. He loved them so much that he built them a synagogue, a place of worship. He loved this servant, this slave. This child, this son, he he held it near and dear to the point where he had a relationship with that servant, a closeness, a familial uh, closeness that he was part of the family. He came out crying to Jesus. In other words, my point is this, this centurion, he was a changed man. God had totally transformed him into the image of Christ because Jesus would have held that child, that servant dear. Jesus would have loved the Jewish people. Jesus would have built the synagogue. Jesus would have served the people. Jesus would have been loved by the people that were the people of God. I believe that he was transformed by the image of Christ. He had a heart for God. He had a heart for the Lord Jesus. He had a heart for people. He thought of others first. He was well respected in his community. He gave to those who considered uh, them his enemy. They, they thought this guy's our enemy, but he's going to get to them anyway. He saw Jesus for who he was, the very son of God. He was a man of great saving faith, great faith. You see, it's not just about believing in God. It's not just about walking in aisles. It's not about praying a prayer. You know what's interesting? We talk about the sinner's prayer. I, I, I challenge you. Find the sinner's prayer in the Bible. You're not going to find it in there. There is no sinner's prayer in the Bible. Now there are principles in Scripture that tell us how to pray when it speaks of, of believing on the Lord. But you're not going to find a sinner's prayer in there. I want to close with this illustration. It's personal. Uh, this particular illustration because uh, it, it, it's, it's, it's about me. When I got saved, As an upper elementary child, I went to a vacation Bible school. We were invited to a vacation Bible school, me and my buddies, uh, by this guy who lived down the street. His name was Bobby. And uh, Bobby took it to BBS. And we were fifth and sixth graders. So, you know, when you're fifth and sixth graders at vacation Bible school, you're kind of the big dogs, right? You kind of run the place. You're the oldest kids there. So you're kind of over all the younger ones, you know. So they kind of look to you and you want to be cool and hip and all that kind of stuff. We were, you know, we are sitting in the back, arms folded, you know. We're the most important here. We're the big kids here. We're the big boys, you know. And then the invitation time, uh, time came after the message. And they asked us to walk an aisle if we wanted to receive Jesus. And me and my buddies were sitting back on the back aisle and uh, one of them said, man, I dare you to go. And I was like, uh, I, 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 did, I double dare you to go. Man, I double dog dare you to go. Man, I triple dog dare you to go. And finally I was just like, that's it. I'm going to do it. So I got a to my seat because i had been triple Dog dare to do it. And I walked down that aisle and I met Bobby up front. It was on the left-hand side. I remember meeting him and shaking his hand and, and went through the motions, if you will, prayed the prayer. And then when I got done, I walked back to my seat. As I'm walking back to my seat, I just remember looking at those guys going, told you, told you, you got your sissies, man. You wouldn't walk the aisle. I did, you know. And I thought that was it. Well, it wasn't long after that, we started going to church again. Uh, Before that, we really didn't go to church, but we started going to church on Easter Sunday uh, the next year. And every Sunday for quite a while, I, I went to, I attended the Sunday school class and the teacher's name was Billy Joe, Billy Joe Lover. And every Sunday at the end of Sunday school class, Billy Joe would say, all right, I want everybody to bow their heads and close their eyes. And I would bow my head, but I wouldn't close my eyes. And he would ask this question. If you die today, do you know for sure you're going to heaven? And every Sunday, I had my head bowed, but I would raise my hand. I'd say, yeah. mm -hmm." But I'd be looking at that floor, and I'd be telling myself, boy, you are lying through your teeth. And I was. I wasn't truly saved. I walked an aisle. I prayed a prayer. I went forward. I went through the motions. I did what they told me to do. But in reality, I was not submitting to God. I was not affirming the lordship of Jesus Christ and who he is as God. I was not receiving him as my savior. I was doing what my buddies dared me to do. And that went on for week after week after week after week until summer came and I went to camp. And when we went to camp, I remember my preacher preaching and I remember saying to myself, man, you, you got to get saved. He got done with the message. And he asked us if we'd like to accept Christ to come forward. And I remember Thurzabelle. No one told me. No one asked me. No one nudged me. Nobody dared me. I simply got up out of my chair. And I walked out to the front. And I prayed and I received Christ as my Savior. For all that time before. Months and months. Maybe even a couple of years. I was living a lie. I believed in God. I prayed for him. I walked an aisle, but I didn't truly submit to him. I didn't truly recognize him and affirm him as the Lord God who would save me and change my life. This centurion was transformed by the power of God. In my own life, I got to be honest with you, after I really accepted Christ, nothing's been the same. It's all changed. Do I mess up all the time? Do I still say, mm-hmm, but you know, my mindset is different. I follow someone. I don't follow myself anymore. I want to follow the King of Kings, and Lord of Lords, Lord Jesus. How about you? Do you know Christ as Savior? Maybe you just kind of, well, I kind of think so, maybe so. You don't even get that settled right now. Would you be willing right now to affirm in your own spirit that Jesus, you are God? I am not you are holy I am sinful you're in heaven and I can't get there because I'm sinful would you be willing right now to recognize him as the Lord God the one that you need to submit to his authority and give your life over to him and receive his saving power today Receive him as your Savior. Receive him as the one who cannot necessarily heal your servant, but heal your soul for eternity. You can get that settled right now. And I'll tell you what if you'll call on him to truly save you and forgive you, and you'll receive his gift of salvation today, he'll change you. Doesn't mean things are going to be easy. Doesn't mean things are going to be bed of roses, because it's not. Because if you do, Satan will fight against you. If you receive Christ, but you do know this, you can know this, that Jesus desires to save you. This is why he went to the cross, this is why he stayed on the cross. This is why he rose from the dead to pay for your sins and to give you life eternal. Would you acknowledge great faith today? Let's pray. Heads are bowed and eyes are closed. I want to right now, as you have your eyes closed. If you don't know Christ as your Savior, if you're unsure about your salvation, would you right now, just in the quietness of your own heart, call out to God. Right now, just crowd to Him like this. The centurion was pleading with Jesus. Would you plead with Him right now and say, Dear God, I believe in your Son. I believe that Jesus is Lord. I believe that He is the Creator. I believe that He's the Savior. And God, I cannot get to heaven without Jesus. Please forgive me of my sins. I believe that you died for me. I believe that you rose from the dead. And God, as best as I know right, I know how right now, God, please come into my life and save me. I submit to your authority. I understand that you're God. And I receive you today as my Savior. I receive your saving power right now. In Jesus' name, amen. If you pray and ask Christ to come to your life and save you, first of all, I want to say, welcome to the family of God. And I'm excited for you. That is so awesome. But I also want you to let us know about it. You know, on our Facebook page there, there's a comment section. Write a comment. Let us know that you accepted Christ. Maybe you're you're, you're a Christian and you kind of thought you were saved, but you weren't sure, settle it now. Settle it now. If you got a Bible, write the date and the time in your Bible so you can know, man, this is the day I received Jesus for real. And I want to challenge the rest of us as believers. You know, there are people all around us who believe in God, who have walked an aisle or prayed a prayer, or they have faith, but they've never truly experienced great faith. They're everywhere. I want to encourage you to encourage them and pray for them as we pray for lost and reach for the lost dying world around us. I want to thank you for worshiping with us today. We pray God's blessing on you. Have a wonderful week, and we look forward to hearing from you. God bless you.